You're listening to All Things Video, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. If you're a frequent listener, I want to let you know about listener support for All Things Video. I often joke that doing this podcast is my favorite way I lose money every month. There's a lot of time and hard work that goes into producing each episode and hiring a professional editor to make them sound great. It really is a labor of love, so I'm happy to do it, but we'd really appreciate your contributions to help improve future episodes. If you'd like to make a small monthly donation, please visit anchor.fm slash all dash things dash video slash support. And we'll include that link in the show notes. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guests are Emily Fonda and Jay Kent Hume, co-founders of The Sociable Society. Jay and Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Hello. Now, you two are originally from Australia, as yes. you know, people probably have picked up by now. Correct, yeah. Uh, how did you get your start in digital media and then make your way to Los Angeles? I guess I'll start with that one. So I have worked as a PR consultant for a number of years and saw the shift happening in sort of the traditional media world into originally bloggers and then social media and kind of crash course in what was happening in the influencer space and we moved from actually we were living in Vancouver in Canada and we moved down to LA about five and a half years ago and that's when we saw a really noticeable shift in LA of the influencer world and what was happening and it just really intrigued us and really wanted to explore the space and see what was happening and I also have a background in acting and kind of saw those two worlds of mine colliding a little bit with these influencers having agents and managers and then my PR experience and we wanted to get into the industry and so we did and we launched the Sociable Society. And I just had to for the ride. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, I was, uh, I've got a bit of a different, uh, different background, studied advertising, marketing briefly, then moved into like an account manager role for events and publishing company in London. And as Emily was saying, we were in Vancouver before uh, moving to LA. And there I was in completely different industry, headhunting. So somewhat still talent management, but managing, I guess you'd say professional careers or yeah, <laughs> something along those lines. But as Emily was seeing the shift in the influencer world or the traditional PR world, uh, I saw... I guess from from my point of view, from the talent management side, that there was there was some crossover from the recruiting world to the influencer space, and a lot of similarities there. And then as we as the company kept growing and growing, I kind of got more and more involved, and then yeah, kind of built it out from there. Yeah, so. I think it it was a really nice crossover of our backgrounds, with me sort of more on the creative side and Jay more on the client and the business side. I think he's been really key to growing the business to where we are versus me, who was just, well, this is cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you, you come from more of a traditional PR communication aspect. And I come from, yeah, the, the business, client management, and just like connecting talent to brands mm -hmm. and then understanding from the recruiting side, just understanding how to, look after people and, and how to understand their wants and needs. And I think that's a key element that I see from a lot of managers that we've dealt with is that the content creators, influences are people. And the more you can understand who they are, what drives them, what motivates them and kind of treat them as, as people and not as a, 
as a dollar sign or like a product. I think the, I think the 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 better the the industry will be, but the yeah the, the better the talent performance will be, and the better you can represent them as well. So why Vancouver initially? How did you end up there? That's a deeper question. But ah, <laughs> yeah. um, we, when we were younger, uh, moved from Australia. We were living in Sydney. We moved to London. And London wasn't my favorite destination of the world. It was great. But I grew up on the beach and grew up skiing and snowboarding and sort of was really keen to head to Canada for a winter season. So I did that. And then sort of nine months later, after being on different sides of the world and being long distance, it you know, Vancouver was kind of the middle ground between London and Australia. And so we decided to do a year and see how we liked it. And then seven years later, <laughs> we were still there. Well, it's like, basically, you were in Australia. I was in London. And we're like, well, if we're going to make this work, let's meet somewhere in the middle. And Vancouver happened to be that place. And it was twelve months a 12-month visa to start with yep. turned into a uh, seven years of rolling yeah. visas. And then got to the point where we're like, all right, we need to get some more sunshine and yeah time to head south and head yeah. south yeah and la had always been a, a destination or california had always been a destination that we wanted to it was just trying navigating our way here sure mm-hmm. and were you working in the influencer space when you were in vancouver jay you mentioned you were in uh working as a headhunter so yep. helping to place people in, in companies yeah was that a natural progression into getting into talent management and influencer marketing by a weird way, I think it was. My dream was always to be a soccer player. If I failed at that, which I did, and then it was to be a uh, like a an agent or a manager in that world, didn't go down that route. And then I think it was kind of it just led me to to this world. I always like I don't know looking after, helping people succeed and grow and make sure they're they're looked after, and that's what I did in the headhunting world. And it was a pretty natural progression mm-hmm. into this into the influencer spaces just looking after people because, I mean, you hear of horror stories in the world of agents and managers and people get taken advantage of, especially people new to the business, things like that. And yeah, just, we wanted to set this company up and make sure that it was done in the right manner and and kind of bring those traits from the recruiting world that I had into the talent management world. So what inspired you to take the leap and say, let's start our own business? I think we've always been kind of enterprising in that respect when we were living in Vancouver I was pretty much focused on acting and being in that world and I worked in restaurants as every starving actor does and (laughs) kind of realized you know I have a degree in communications and why don't I sort of explore that aspect which is how I fell into PR consulting so I had my own book of clients up there that I worked with because that enabled me to have the flexibility and when we moved down here I was contracting with a couple of agencies and still had my own clients. And Jay as well has always sort of been involved in different things and working with companies that were growing or looking to invest in things and was always on the lookout for something in that kind of world. And so this was really just an opportunity for us to give it a shot. And Our personalities as well had led us to like wanting to be flexible, freedom, like, and I don't do too well in uh, in big corporate <laughs> companies. I know I've been working for myself since I was probably twelve. <laughs> like, yeah. whether it's running my own, like uh, my own ginger beer label, or <laughs> outselling my parents. My dad had like a microbrewery, and so I tagged on the side at probably age of twelve, and 
yeah, came up with all these different different recipes for soda. And then, yeah, just always kind of made my own money in my own way. And so I think it was a, for me, it was a natural progression. I'd always had the itch of, I want to do my own thing. And recruiting and headhunting was very much, you were your own brand. You built your own brand, you built your own name, you built your book of clients, you networked with, with I was in the tech space. So you networked with developers, project managers, these areas. So yeah, I think doing our own thing was a pretty natural progression. It sounds like it was a bit in your DNA as well. Were your parents entrepreneurial? Yeah, mine certainly were. I mean, yeah. they didn't start their own businesses, but you know, my dad moved from Europe to Australia in war times and built everything up himself from nothing. And um, you know, Jay's parents are my parents are more on the free side, so they very free spirited. They free spirited the flexibility, the DNA that they implanted was freedom and flexibility, and I think kind of choose your own path. What was the hardest part about being first time founders? Everything. Yeah. I don't think there's been. I think it's just it's navigating navigating kind of the world like this uncharted kind of space that like you don't really know you can put a plan in place and i think we probably have written i don't know three to five different business plans or strategies and i'm pretty sure as soon as we wrote those the next day they were, they were basically useless. So it's like, I think it's just trying to figure out everything and work together and, and stay stay on course. But uh, And I think also being flexible to this industry because the, the model that we set the Social Society up it's completely at different. the beginning four years ago is a very different model now. And we've shifted into what the industry was doing. Okay. So let's talk about that. How? What was the original inspiration and how has the model changed over the past four years? So originally when we set up, because a lot of my relationships were still in Canada, we set up a sort of a talent management company of Canada and Canadian influences. And then we felt the distance of actually being in LA versus Canada and the differences of how quickly the US market was working versus how slowly the Canadian market was working. Mm -hmm. And how quickly deals were happening, how much money was on the table in the US versus Canada was still a little bit stuck in the traditional PR mindset of, well, this is free. And they were looking for earned media and didn't quite wrap their heads around the paid media space as quickly. And so it was difficult navigating that while having a mindset of being down here. So we shifted and started growing the talent in the US. And then we got a reputation from clients used to come to us and say, you know, you, you don't really work with the talent that we're looking to work with. Can you go and find them? So then we started sourcing influences and building campaigns. And so that sort of launched our campaign side of the business. Simultaneously pulling away from Canada and growing the US roster. So now we're really two model business of representing talent in the US and working with clients on the campaign space and building a network out that side as well. And what are the challenges for brands that are looking to embrace influencer marketing? What do you say to a CMO who's never done anything in the influencer space before that wants to learn more or run a test campaign? It comes in two prongs. They come from either sort of old school mindsets of marketing or they come from the very data-driven tech side. So they're used to Google ads and Facebook ads and things that deliver immediate bang for your buck. You can see the results of what you're spending. It's very, 
or not difficult, but sometimes we run into conversations where we're explaining about these use of content and the content creation that you get and the credibility that comes behind working with influencers as ambassadors to the brand and championing that brand to a built-in audience is very different to placing an ad. And so how do you get a product in front of people and actually make those people pay attention to it? So those are kind of the conversations that we're having on a regular. Um, I think it's probably a recent campaign that we've run, which was we feel is a very successful campaign, but uh, some internal clients within the, within the brand were focused purely on downloads. It was a, it was a mobile play and uh, very focused on kind of just the downloads that would occur. But from the grand scheme of things, like the impressions, the reach, the conversation that was built, I think there's, there's still, and I'm not going to be the first to say this, but there's still a, a lot of understanding, a lot of education that still needs to happen in our space. There's still a lot of gray area. Uh, I think that's where influencer marketing it lives in that gray area where it's not traditional kind of print TV. It's not digital ads. It's dealing with people who are able to drive conversation and it's dealing with being able to build brand awareness as well as putting a call to action in there so you can see direct results from it. But yeah, we're still seeing that shift from the traditional mindset coming over. So I think in the first part of, of when we developed it, it was, I just felt like I was a teacher. So, and I, I was learning it as I was going as well, but we were just having to have kind of educational conversations and showing like, this is what's happening. This is what content creators are able to do and, uh, and able to offer as opposed to running a traditional digital ad, running a TV ad. I think it's the educational standpoint has been the, the biggest challenge, but anything you'd add? The retention of customers is really tenfold of what you would get working through an influencer than you would just a digital ad. And where the audiences are moving and how people are consuming content now. Um, sidebar, funny story, we're just in England and my niece and nephew live there and one is 16 and one is 12. And I sat them down to ask them, like, how do they consume content? Like, what are that generation doing to get entertainment? And it was fascinating listening to them. Like, they went through Instagram, Twitter, uh, TikTok, Snapchat. Snapchat. Not Snapchat really anymore. Not for them. And at the end of it, I was sort of like, what about YouTube? And they're like, oh, is that a social media platform? Like, they use YouTube so much. They don't watch regular television unless there's hype about a new TV show that you can only get on television. Everything is through YouTube. All the conversations with their friends are through social media platforms. Like that is in five, 10 years time, that's who these brands are selling to. And understanding where those mindsets are and how they consume their content is really what we're encouraging brands to be paying attention to because a television ad, it doesn't have the same impact that it did 10 years ago even, maybe 20 years ago. And so it's sort of following the trends, understanding where the audiences are consuming the content and then trying to relay that to the brands to get them aware of how to communicate with them and their audiences. I love that you're uh, using your family as your very own focus group. <laughs> my sister is a, is a middle school teacher and it's the same thing for me. It's like she's my gateway to what is cool. What do, what do you know young people today look to social media for mm -hmm. and there's so many different use cases right a lot of these apps that i'm not the target you know audience yeah. demographic for I, I don't use tiktok right i never really use snapchat it's interesting to see 
how that changes over time. One platform is very cool, use it in this way. You know, these new features are rolled out. You know, this this changes. But I think the, the broader point is that when influencer marketing started, it was completely unknown. There weren't budgets for it. People were like, "Who are these influencers? You know, they're they're popular on these social platforms that my kids watch, but I've yeah. never heard of them." And now it's grown to a point where influencers command these very large and engaged audiences more than traditional celebrities or television programs did in the past. And they've got their you know, built-in distribution. And people are so fatigued by advertising mm -hmm. that they're increasingly turning to these people that feel like they're friends, right? It's like a loyal, engaged feeling of, okay, I trust this person. I base my decisions off of what this person does. I trust their recommendations. Yeah, they are like the modern day kind of celebrity which yeah is, is no new statement to make. But when I was growing up, I idolized footballers, soccer players. I idolized actors and musicians and things like that. Now, if you're in your teens, you've got these influencers, content creators. And I think there is a, actually, this is a sidebar, but I think there's a difference with influencer and content creator as well. I think for when you're building out a marketing strategy, like an influencer, they still exist, but they're, very much influential within their audience and their niche and a content creator i think is someone i would coin as more like entertainment and you're you're following them they're, they're just providing entertainment and kind of a an escapism if you will um what were we talking about before sorry <laughs> well you, you were mentioning yeah. how the idea of celebrity has changed right yes and, yes. I, and I think that now we're seeing those worlds collide even more right yeah. athletes musicians uh, traditional actors and other yeah. forms of celebrities are turning to social media as a way to extend their audience, as a way to stay relevant and attract younger audiences to watch their traditional content or, uh, you know, increase their fandom for them as an athlete or a musician. Absolutely. And I think the, it, like the social media is given the, given the celebrity and the athlete even more opportunity to engage, but I still, like, there's still that distant connection. If you're, if you're an 18-year-old, 20-year-old, like 13-year-old, and you're you're following Steph Curry or whatever, and like you're you're still looking and idol and idolizing him in in a different way to if you're watching a, a YouTuber, you think ah oh, they're 18, 20, maybe 25. You're like, man, this is something I could actually I could do. Like, uh, am I gonna go play the NBA? No, like like the chances of that are like 0.01 percent. But could I start a YouTube channel and? Yes, you can. Everybody can do that. Everybody has access to that. And then I think there's just a deeper connection there. Like influencers, content creators are like more engaged with the audience as well. So yeah, you do feel build that bond and that trust. And like you you look at them like I think we used to with actors and and like traditional celebrities as yeah. well. So, but I would argue that Steph Curry is infinitely more accessible than Michael Jordan was 100%. Right? or or Larry Bird. Mm -hmm. And then you think about, well, what is the next class of just using basketball as an example? Your athletes are young. They're 19, 20, yeah. right? They're coming fresh out of high school or maybe play one or two years in college. And so NBA players are growing up with social media and they're looking at the role models that came before them, right? What's LeBron doing? What's Steph Curry doing? I want to be like them, yeah. but I also grew up with Instagram and yeah. I was probably the most famous person at my high school because I happen to be very good at this popular sport. And now they're like thrust onto this national stage, but have this kind of authenticity and connection with their audience as a result of these social platforms. Yeah, definitely. And I also think like 
back in the day, like you could never direct message Michael Jordan. You could write a snail mail letter that went to his fan mail inbox, which never did it to Michael Jordan, but I remember sending a number of handwritten letters to favorite celebrities in the hopes that one day I might get a response. And I never did. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I got a couple of responses yeah. from footballers. Oh, oh wow. Yeah, okay. so. There you go. And now you can, in two seconds, write a comment on your favorite musician or your favorite actor's or your favorite athlete's uh, Instagram page, and they might like it. They might actually respond to you. And that to somebody growing up and aspiring to be something or growing in that world, I think is the most incredible feeling for these people. And I say kids, but even, you know, young adults or adults even. like I know plenty of people my age that would love a shout-out from, from, like, like Steven Gerrard or Ronaldo, (laughs) Messi. And but like on that you can like you can even get video shout outs and call outs direct like you there's opportunity for if your friends want to pitch together and get your birthday surprise and yeah. get like now you have platforms like cameo yeah. that make yeah. it super accessible like yeah. you can get steph curry wishing you happy birthday and stuff like that so like it is accessible but i still think that there's a like actors and uh athletes and musicians like, as a side we put them on a pedestal because they they are the point zero one percent of the world like that have this ability that like their talent or their charisma or something like they've got something there but i, I still think we yeah we put them on the pedestal and we don't feel as close a connection whereas a influencer content creator you feel like they are just your like your neighbor like you feel like there's someone like someone you do go to school with or you work with or something like that and majority of the time you probably do know <laughs> like in LA I think everybody knows knows someone mm-hmm. um, within that world but it's you just feel more comfortable and you feel like okay they're just a regular person like me they're just like they're just creating content on YouTube they're showing me the inside of their day we work with a lot of mums and it's like like we have a newborn like, uh, a nine month old and you're like yeah I can relate to how your mornings are I can relate to what you you go through like I do the same stuff. It's actually funny you bring that up because having been in the space now for a number of years, I feel like we're slightly come at the influencer world from a different perspective because we're so ingrained in it every day. It wasn't until having our daughter that I truly understood the power of an influencer because when you have a child, there's this innate feeling of like, oh God, I need to get a bathtub or I need to get a product or I need to get a lotion or whatever you're buying something every second day because you just don't know what you need and the amount of blogs i read and went on some of our moms that we represent and also some that i follow and if they recommended a product i guarantee i bought a number of things that i probably didn't need just because they recommended it and i was like well if they're recommending it i absolutely need it (laughs) they've been through this before yeah and exactly it's, it's so true and now with the ability on your phone to be following someone you click a swipe up and next minute it's on your doorstep the next day it, or same day consumerism <laughs> is so different now and it makes things so accessible and brands have this ability to tap into this whole audience and get their products in front of them so quickly that i think it's great for business it's great for consumers i think it's great for the economies i'm sure it has its downfalls and you know, materialism and spending, but I think overall from a new way to advertise and market to people, it's incredible. 
Yeah. I mean, particularly becoming new parents, right? You're faced with this challenge where virtually everything is new and yeah. you have to make these incredibly important decisions about the products that you bring into your home or what you trust with your child. And the, the best shortcut out there is to trust recommendations. And in the past, you would have done that by reading parenting books or asking your friends, your parents for, for suggestions. Now you can easily crowdsource that through the internet by following your favorite influencer. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And before we had a baby, you know, I would buy the occasional piece of jewelry or some clothes or something that I saw somebody wearing that I thought looked cool. Or It's just amazing how influential people can be and when you need something and you're looking for it it's peer-to-peer -peer review and it's peer-to-peer -peer, um recommendations that you go by because there's yeah. a trust there's a trust, trust level and i think one thing with with the talent that we work with as well is that you have a certain amount of trust with your audience as well so the, the moment you sell out and and put a brand or work with a brand that you don't want her percent support or a behind or it kind of looks odd on your channel like you lose credibility and getting that back is a huge struggle so i think for like when we're looking at things and when like emily was saying looking at baby products and stuff like that you know that if, if you're a mom and you're representing a product like i would say for 90 percent, maybe 99 percent of the time like this mom is not going to recommend a product that they would not use on their own kid as well. And so you, there's that trust aspect there where you're like, okay, like I've followed this person. I've, I've had a peek into their life. I resonate with them. If they recommend this lotion or if they recommend these clothes, all right. Yeah. I'm I'm getting them. Like, I don't know what we're doing. <laughs> like I, we're, we're trying to figure it out as we go. And yeah, I think the, like, yeah, it's the, the power of, of these people is uh i think it's still still being untapped as well yeah and they, they certainly recognize that the trust and the credibility is their number one currency right? yeah that if you sacrifice that for short-term profits off one brand deal for something you don't believe in the audience can sniff that out real quick right and and people are smart and this was also part of my niece and nephew focus group the way that they talked about influences and branded sponsorships from my niece in particular who's 12 years old just turned 12 and how quickly she was like oh yeah no i unfollow them if they sell me something that i'm not interested in like i think that's the one thing that people need to give audiences credit for is they're smart and if they're not into it they'll swipe right they'll unfollow and you know that's kind of the end of your reign i suppose is mm -hmm. your influence and you have to try to build that back they were also aware that like there were sponsored videos oh, and sponsored ads and 100%. they and yeah. they but they didn't they didn't mind as long as it was on brand and it was on point i think that's one thing that maybe like cmos or brands need to understand is that working with influence like you you're breaking through a whole lot of barriers you're breaking through ad pop-ups like the the software that for, like you can put on ad blockers uh but you're getting that trusted audience and uh, you, you that trusted voice but the audience that's watching is fully aware and is fully appreciative of it because they, they they're consuming the content they understand that the content creator needs to make a living so that they can keep creating content for them to watch and they they don't mind and that's coming from 12 and 16 year olds mm -hmm. the consumer is getting savvier but they're also like understanding and more appreciative of it and i want well. to highlight that because i think that's been one of the biggest shifts in the last five years within influencer marketing before 
it would could be seen as selling out, right? Or oh, you're doing a brand sponsorship, and you know we trusted you to just make cool content. And I think that has shifted as influencer marketing has become so much more widespread and accepted that younger audiences realize this is how my favorite people make money and mm-hmm. they need to do this in order to continue to create content. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's seen as it's appreciated rather than rejected because this, if, if you know, taking the mom example, you're getting a chance to view products that could be beneficial to you rather than something that has no bearing on your life. It's, it's viewed as, okay, cool. I understand that this is part of the business relationship and if these are tailored recommendations to what I choose to watch, then it's a good fit. Absolutely. I think the way that brands too are coming to the table with understanding that this is people's livelihoods, they create this content, they do a really great job of it. They've built up this audience for free a lot of the time because they've spent the time creating that first content, building that audience, building that trust, building that audience that a lot of them you know, quit full-time careers to focus on this. And so they have to make up that income somewhere that I think, you know, brands generally understand that and, you know, can value the content, they can value the return that they're getting. And like you said, audiences understand that too. And I think, you know, it's, as long as it's seamless and it's a good integration, then yeah, it's a good fit. And I think that's when we see the most success from the campaigns that we've done. And I don't think that's new, like, I think previously before influencers, creators became the, the trend and the cool thing to, to do, like we had restaurant critics. So if you're looking for a restaurant, influencers and content creators have been as old as time. Like there's people have been around. There's been influence from, from day one on kind of what to do, how to act, how to behave, what's fashionable, what's trendy, things like that. It's just now it's on a much bigger platform and everybody can have that influence that's exactly now. right it's democratized right these mm-hmm. tastemakers are no longer the elite anyone yep. has access to the tools of content creation and the ability to build an audience mm-hmm. yeah 100 yeah. percent. which is which is a cool thing yeah like, like it's... especially if you look at celebrities and you know you'd see the gucci gowns on the red carpets and your big brands that no one could ever afford to buy or you most people you know your regular person wouldn't ever dream nor have anywhere to wear something like that <laughs> um and now it's like you can forever 21 is coming to mind but you know like a forever 21 or revolve or these big fashion labels that you know are so accessible to people and they're seeing people wearing them in cool hip ways that it's really accessible so yeah i'm interested as well like i know you're chatting with us but i'm interested to hear your opinion from where you've seen a shift i know video youtube's been a big big focus of yours but you've been in the industry a while like like, how have you seen the shift? Yeah, it's changed significantly. And obviously, you know, platforms come and go. Yeah. Things like Vine come to mind, right? Yeah. And then, you know, of course, the enthusiasm around Snapchat when it was new and then Instagram copying stories and some of their other most popular features and attracting most of the, the audience from that. So the landscape shifts. I think YouTube has stood the test of time now for over 10 years because it has had direct monetization out of the gate, right? If you are a serious creator there is an advertising mechanism built in and still the other platforms lag behind Facebook and, and now through Instagram, they're trying to take efforts to correct that. But many other platforms solely relied on, well, scale up, build a big audience. And then from there, you'll be able to track brand attention to do campaigns or, or branded sponsorships. I think the other changes that we've observed is, you know, two, three years ago, there was this enthusiasm around micro influencers or nano influencers, right? How do we attract everyday people or at least 
some people with a degree of following but aren't at the level of a mid-sized content creator or a mega influencer like some of the top names that we know maybe we'll activate you know a large scale of influencers and we'll we'll aggregate you know the same number of views or impressions or engagements that we expected to see from one to ten traditional sized influencers and you know, for some brands, maybe that works, but I think the pendulum swung the other direction. People realized, sure, you can grab a lot of those vanity metrics pretty quickly, but if you're talking about that pull and the, the trust that these creators have over their audiences, you really only get that from the serious creators who've taken the time to day by day build that trust and build the relationship with their mm -hmm. followers. I think also, yeah, the, the micro trend, you know, we did a number of micro campaigns a couple of years ago, and the effort of working with somebody who doesn't have the experience of like a mid-tier or a mega who do this every day and they create content for brands on the regular you know it's it's almost more headache than it's really worth at the end of the day there, there is a balance and i think if you're trying to target into a niche audience say like if you are trying to target canada for example like you're trying to target vancouver or toronto majority of the larger content creators in there are going to have a majority US following. So if you're a Canadian brand trying to target Canadians, you're going to want to use a smaller creator or a smaller audience. But as Emily said, like the challenges that we'd have is majority of these people have full-time jobs. If you're targeting a mum that's in Vancouver that has 25, 30,000 followers, like they have a full-time job, two full-time jobs. One is their, their paid job and the other is being a parent. It does prove challenging and I think with that, like from a brand budget perspective, you've got to be able to pay someone like us as an agency to be able to manage them as well. So, or you've got to pay a full-time employee internally to be able to manage that. So yeah, from the cost perspective, like I think it's looking at what your brand is, what your product is and what the audience is that you're looking to reach and weighing out like, is a micro influence campaign for me or am I just doing it because this is what everyone's talking about? And I think this world that we're in, the influencer space is still trying to be figured out. Like it's moving at a, a thousand miles an hour. It's changing where it, we're at the whim of these platforms who change algorithms, change what is okay, what is the standard. Um, I mean, that changes all the time. So you're having to move with that. And I think to that point, how the landscape changes so rapidly, one of the other big things I've observed in, in the industry over the past, you know, call it decade, is that influencer marketing is not just a silo in which you run advertising or marketing campaigns. It's permeated all aspects of other life, right? We've talked about athletes and traditional celebrities all embracing social media. We've talked about the, the changes to e-commerce uh, as a result of influencer marketing. One of the things that I've been personally fascinated about recently is the impact on politics, right? Yeah. I mean, this week in the US, we saw the president essentially troll a political opponent Yep. using a meme on the same token you know i think there are good things happening in politics too there's the ability to give more people a voice through social media or unite groups and causes and to speak up as a result of having access to these platforms well they also said the republican national committee spent i can't remember the exact number but like x amount of money on facebook advertising in the 2016 election and they're on track to do double the amount or something this year and the democratic party is falling behind and mm. how they did an analysis on you know, funds raised from social media advertising to traditional forms of advertising. And, you know, social media brought in an excessive amount of money from fundraising because people can 
relate to those posts. They get, and like you said, there is the extreme, there's the clickbait, there's the ways of getting into people's minds because that's their personal feed and what they're interested in is going to show up in the algorithms and, you know, you're going to get both sides of the coin. But I think it, it really does show that no future political campaign is going to be able to move forward without doing some kind of influencer slash traditional digital ad spend on these social media platforms. So what's coming next? If you had to make three predictions for the future of digital media, what would they be? I think from the influencer space, longer term partnerships, and we're, we're seeing that shift now because I think uh, less is going to be more. Longer partnerships is going to be key for building true, like true collaborations and, and proper content and more storytelling in that manner. There's going to be a economic downturn at some point. I think that's going to clean out a lot of pretenders in the space, like it does with any industry and any business. And more attention is going to start to be paid to true audiences as well. Like I think, like influencers are already having to be more open with what their audience is, and I think that is going to be even more prevalent. I think there's going to be a bit of an FTC shift. We're seeing some things happening on YouTube right now with using children in video content. I see a lot of these regulatory boards kind of stepping in and trying to corral the content that's being created. I don't know if I 100% agree with it because it kind of takes away the true value of voice and freedom. Um, but I think that's what they're combating right now because they're combating national laws of the lands on a global worldwide scale. Um, so, you know, freedom of speech here doesn't necessarily mean there's freedom of speech in another country. So I think there's just going to be a little bit more regulation around FTCs, how people have to disclose when they're advertising, how they're advertising, and then the use of, you know, name, likeness, that sort of thing of brands using other people's image, essentially is what that means and the content that they're creating. We're always seeing a shift back and forth in the agreements and the brands trying to own content and trying to, um, you know, basically... Own in perpetuity. Owning this content, basically, and the influencers and creators' images and things and being able to do whatever they will with it. Um, that's something that we're really conscious of when we're putting these campaigns together and making sure that the influencers are protected because the last thing we need is for a one Instagram post to go out and next thing they're on a billboard on Sunset Avenue because the client owns that image and they can do whatever they want with it. So that's, you know, it is shifting for the better and people are starting to understand the sort of legal contractuality that's going in behind the scenes of these posts, but certainly being aware of what an influencer is doing, how they're creating the content and what they're agreeing to when they sell it. I can see more product placement style partnerships in YouTube content. Similar thing to James Bond drives an Aston Martin or a Jaguar, uptick in Jaguar demands or Aston Martin demands. Not that too many can afford a Aston, but um, that style of, uh, of collaboration. I've seen a couple where brands have said, hey, like, like we just want our water canister or our watch or our clothing just to be in the content in the scene. and. I think from a subliminal perspective, like I can see that happening more where brands will like, here's our clothing line. We'll do a six month collaboration deal with you. We just want you to wear our clothing so that people start to ask that conversation. So I can see like more of that product placement and how that needs to be disclosed or how that needs to is 
leaning into what Emily is saying from the FTC guidelines aspect is, yeah, that'll be interesting to see how that that unfolds because if you're wearing an outfit that is provided to you and you are being paid for that, do you have to disclose, you have to disclose that? Mm-hmm. But how... Which is strange because Justin Timberlake, you know, two years ago wearing Nikes during the halftime mm-hmm. performance doesn't necessarily have to disclose that, Yeah, right? But I guess it's public, publicly available information, whereas a lot of these agreements and things are all confidential. So they're not publicly available to know who's sponsored by who. You know, it's the same as like Roger Federer playing in his Adidas or... Nike. That's public knowledge. Um, you don't know who a YouTuber is being sponsored by because that is not public unless they actively. No, absolutely. I, I think it'll be how how much you have to disclose that. Like in the description of a YouTube channel, can you just put uh, "I'm in partnership with right. Adidas"? I'm in partnership with Daniel Wellington. Uh, I'm in partnership with X water bottle company or. Yeah. protein so like yeah. on that aspect but i think that's like, i can see that evolving more especially for more of the what i call like the content creators so the ones that are doing skits the ones that are doing entertainment style content pranks like challenges things like that i think that can be more will be more prevalent because the conversations if you have a look in the comments and things like that is oh i love your dress or i love your jeans or where'd you get your watch from and like if you're a if you're a cmo like you want people to be asking about your product. And if you're doing a two to three minute integration on YouTube where you're talking about, hey, like you can get a great set of eyewear or you can get a great watch or I've got a great clothing haul, people take notice of that and, and people understand it. But if you can get the consumer to ask, like, where did you get that from or what is that that you're wearing? Like it has so much more impact when the influencer turns around and says, oh, uh, I got this from xyz store or this is these are my new adidas i think that also speaks to the creativity of a creator you know there is the trend of the skinny tees and whatever weight loss things and even eyeglasses companies were full for it or weight loss companies and it was basically a pretty picture of somebody holding a product that's not going to do well People, like we go back to, audiences are smart. They know that you're actively trying to promote something. It's the beauty of the photography that goes behind a great Instagram post or the creativity that goes behind a funny skit or a cool vlog or a day in the life of or a haul that people want to pay attention to and people want to watch. And I think that's where the creators, it's it's on them to be creative and to do good content and integrate a brand into their life that makes sense and that's in a creative way that people want to watch it because otherwise same thing on tv we skip through the ads people don't care it's a bathroom break an ad is a bathroom <laughs> break or you go get a coffee you go go you go get a beer or like you yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like, no one wants to watch it unless no it's one wants to look yeah exactly <laughs> if yeah. you were starting a business in the media and entertainment space today what would you do play the long game i think yeah like everything that I do from a focus and everything I tell new talent that I work with is like, don't expect immediate results. I want to work with you long-term and the partnership will grow long-term. And I think if you're starting a business, it's easy to get blinded by the money and blinded by success and stuff like that. And I think it's very rare for overnight success to happen. So I think if you play the long game, you're bound to have more success. You're bound to enjoy it more as well because you're not just going to be 
kind of chasing your tail and, and looking for what, why am I not successful? I've been in business for a month and I've got this. I think that's more on the creator side. Like if you're an influencer. I think even something. for a business. But I think from a business perspective, if you're joining in or you're setting up an agency or yet another influencer marketing platform that you <laughs> so know, excited has about all that. your campaigns on it and people bid for the projects and things like that, there's a million of them. Like you're not new to the space. So do your homework and learn from the creators, learn from other agencies and try to, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are so many different wheels out there right now that it's almost getting flooded with too many people trying to do different things that just doesn't work. And I think even though we've only been in the industry for four years, we are kind of old school now. And, you know, it's, we've been doing this for a long time. We've been working with different creators and different types of campaigns and brands and we've learned so much and I'm not saying that we know everything we certainly don't we're still learning from everything we do but I think there is a process and there is a way of doing things that it's it is actually calming the industry down a little bit because a couple of years ago it was wild wild west and everyone was trying to figure it out and everyone was doing their own things and their own take and their own spin on things and it worked for some and it didn't work for others and the way we do things is going to be very different to how somebody else does things. Um, but I think, you know, just kind of come with a bit of knowledge as to what this industry is doing and where it's been because I do often see new agencies or new companies that are bringing campaigns to our creators and it's not well thought out. Some of it is just like is know who you're, who you're marketing to or who you're, who you're working with. There's a great company we work with called Paladin. They they not lift, paid promotion. No, no, not not <laughs> paid promotion. Uh, what you guys do really well in in the space is like you listen to feedback and you act on that feedback as well. So I think come with an open mind, know who your customer base is or your audience is, and ask lots of questions about them and and let them almost guide you. Have a long term approach to like not instant success is kind of your your mindset. It's well, thank you. We appreciate that. And that's yeah. always been our philosophy. So hundred percent. Yeah. I agree with that. Sentiment. I mean, yeah. I mean, the things that you keep rolling out and again, yeah, I think the platform is fantastic. And I also think something that I really try to do often is collaborate with some of our direct competitors. Mm -hmm. um, some of our closest, you know, business relationships are what you would call a competitor. They have their own roster of talent or they have their own book of business, but we talk about the challenges that they're facing. What are some of the issues that happened with campaigns or what is the feedback from creators about certain platforms or whatever it is. Um, and we're actually collaborating together and talking about stuff because it's got to be an open market. Everyone has enough book of business. There's enough money and brands and whatever to go around that I think the more that we can create some kind of a standardization of the industry, the better it's going to be for the creators and for the brands. Yeah. The rising tide lifts yeah. all boats. Yes. Yeah. And if you're Penny, if you're an agency or on the management side, pay your bills on time. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that's the biggest, like I, like just in the space, I think, like, I don't know where in the conversation this could have come up early, but I think that's, that's one of the biggest things is, is from a brand or from an agency perspective is you need to understand that this is the livelihood of, of people like of people's earnings and if you're paying 30 days late 60 days late you're potentially putting some content creators out of business or putting undue stress on them as well so i think yeah 
one thing I'd say is is, is pay. That's a big pet peeve right now. Yeah, yeah. Paying yeah. A, a very big trend of agencies and brands taking liberties on paying bills. And I'm seeing a lot from a like a large influencer agencies, and I don't know whether it's like whether they're stretched thin or things like that. I, I mean, don't want to assume anything, but where yeah, the, these agencies are 30, 60, 60 days late, and sometimes the terms are already 60 days from from content so you're looking at paying someone like 120 days after they produce the work they can't go to their mortgage broker or their their, their bills or their at&t or t-mobile and say hey i'll pay you in 120 days they have these bills they have things that they have to pay for but mm-hmm. that's another tangent where can people find out more about the two of you and more about the Social Buzz Society? LinkedIn is probably best for me. We are revamping our social media, so don't expect too much on there right now, but you can find us at, at the Social Society on yeah, Instagram. Our website, our website has... www.thesociablesociety.com. Check us out. Our buyers are on there. Um, LinkedIn, uh, give us a call. We're always we're very accessible. We like talking to people. Um, Jay and I sort of... One of the values when we set up the company was to be transparent and honest. And it's something that we really strive to do with everybody we talk to and keeping it kind of friendly, lighthearted, have a good time. That's what we're all about. So yeah, connecting with new people is always a fun thing for us. Absolutely. I think the more we can connect with, more we can learn. Yeah. Well, Emily, Jay, thank you both so much for coming on the show. Awesome to get a deep dive into the world of influencer marketing and how it's changed and where it's going. So thanks again. Yeah, Absolutely. Our pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another episode of All Things Video. If you have any questions or suggestions for future content, please send us an email at allthingsvideopodcast at gmail.com. And if you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. Thanks.